Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week, my producer Miranda and I explore the top stories making waves in the news, and some that are just plain interesting. We connect you with the journalists and people who know the story, and bring you news without the noise, so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, we will be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. This week, we had a huge win for genetic genealogy. Genetic genealogy has been used to identify more than 40 murder and rape suspects, in some cases at least 50 years old. There was always a question as to whether using this investigative technique would hold up in court, and now we have an answer. William Talbot II was tracked down through DNA that two of his cousins uploaded to a genealogy website, and then he was found guilty of the murder of a young Canadian couple in 1987. We spoke to Megan Multaney, science writer for Wired, for more details on this case. This case is coming out of Snohomish County, Washington, and it's almost a 32-year-old case. So in November of 1987, there was a young couple from Victoria, Canada, Tanya Van Kolenborg, and her boyfriend at the time, Jay Cook, and they were supposed to just have like an easy overnight trip to Seattle, take a road trip, take a ferry, pick up some parts for Jay's dad and, and be back home. And they disappeared and their bodies were found about a week later separately. They were about 60 miles away from each other and they had each been killed in very violent but very different ways. And for 31 plus years, Snohomish County and Skagit County, because the investigation spanned multiple jurisdictions, never really got a substantive lead. They never arrested any and the case went very, very cold. But in the days following the Golden State Killer case going public last April, the detective on the case in Snohomish County, a guy named Jim Scharf, had actually been reached out to by this company called Parabon Nanolabs that the county had been working with to try to piece together a composite of what they thought the killer would look like in this double homicide case. They had been able to pull some DNA from the crime scene back in 1987. So this company Parabon already had it on file and when it became obvious that they could then upload it to this public genealogy database called GEDmatch, Detective Scharf said, yeah, let's go ahead and do it. And a few days later, they gave him a name and that was William Earl Talbot. So at that point, the police start trailing him, surveilling him. They pick up a cup that he drops out of his car. The DNA is a match to this person called Individual A, who they had been seeking for, for 31 years. And at that point, he was arrested. And so that was last May. And his trial started earlier this month in Everett, Washington. And everyone thought this was going to be a case where genetic genealogy was going to really be on trial. We were going to hear from the genealogist at Parabon Nanolabs and hear all about this. And, and actually, that didn't really wind up happening. Yeah, they didn't dispute the, it at all, really. No, it was actually pretty surprising to those of us who were there. So this actually kind of happened before trial started in pretrial motions where Talbot's defense attorneys decided they were just going to treat genetic genealogy like any other tip, just like if you called it in on a hotline. They didn't go after it in court. They reached an agreement that Detective Scharf would be the one to describe what happened and to not belabor the point. And so it didn't really get the kind of scrutiny that people had been expecting. And I think what this basically, you know, the people, law experts who I talked to after the verdict came down on Friday said is this basically tells us that we didn't know whether juries were going to be skeptical of this kind of evidence or if they think genetic genealogy was going to be kind of a problematic investigative tool for identifying suspects. And, and now we know that you can convince a lay jury to convict someone found as a suspect through this this new technique. What does this mean still, though, for privacy issues? There's still a lot of people and experts that say that the future of this is still kind of uncertain. This is the first time, this is the first conviction that we've gotten. 
but everybody's concerned about people being turned into genetic informants, basically. If you upload something, is my family member in danger of getting caught up or something like that? There's a couple issues that privacy advocates are talking about. And so one of them is that the kind of genetic information that is contained in the profiles that are being created to upload to sites like GEDmatch are really different than the kind of profiles that exist in CODIS, these criminal databases that have been around since the 90s. There's vast troves of personal information in these genetic files. That could be family secrets about being born out of wedlock, or it could be carrying genetic diseases, things in your health history that's really sensitive information. And there are no limits right now to how police could use that information. That's a concern. Right now, there are currently no laws or regulations to say how serious a crime it has to be for police to investigate it and using this technique. And right now, the only limitations are these kinds of terms of services that these databases and companies use. But as we all know, terms and services change. And and in fact, just during the time that Mr. Talbot was awaiting trial, GEDmatch changed their rules actually more than once because there have been cases where police wanted to use them for less violent crimes. And so it's kind of created this slippery slippery slope effect. I mean, I think as was reported in the New York Times, in Texas, another GEDmatch search occurred after the police said they were looking for a sexual predator. But then when a genetic genealogist gave the police a name, they charged him with burglary instead. And so we're bumping up against a lot of these questions and the debate is still going to rage on, even though the Talbot case gives prosecutors and police departments who've been rushing to use this technique some sense of security that they'll be able to use it to secure convictions. But there's kind of all these privacy debates that are in no way lessened by the outcome of the trial. Megan Multaney, science writer for Wired. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Earlier this week, we got a new report from the Department of Homeland Security Office of the Inspector General. They discovered extreme overcrowding, prolonged detention stays, and health risks at several border patrol stations in South Texas. The Associated Press also released a video of a 12-year-old girl describing the poor care at a border patrol station in Clint, Texas. That's the station where there was over 700 kids there at one point, and that station was only designed to hold about 100 adults. We spoke to Steph Kite. She's a reporter for Axios for more on the situation at the border. This is another report. The Office of the Inspector General at, at DHS has actually come out with a few reports over the past few months highlighting some of these issues at the Border Patrol stations. This one, yet again, really shows the extreme overcrowding in many of these stations. There are thousands of migrants being held in these CBP facilities, which are only meant to be short-term facilities. So Border Patrol is only supposed to have migrants for a maximum of 72 hours, and it's really just to process migrants, to get basic information about where they came from, their age, basic information that, that Border Patrol takes, and then Immigration and Customs Enforcement is supposed to actually take care of migrants for the longer term, and children are supposed to go to Health and Human Services. But what's happening is because all of these different agencies are so backlogged, because of this surge of migrants we've seen at the border over the past few months, Border Patrol is being forced to keep them much longer. So they're actually surpassing that 72-hour standard that CBP has set and that court settlements have implemented as, as the limit for holding children in Border Patrol facilities. So hundreds of these kids, thousands of migrants overall, are being held in these facilities longer than the time that's supposed to be the limit according to CBP's own standards. Yeah, when the Office of Inspector General went and visited 
these border patrol stations, there were around 8,000 migrants held there. 43% of them had been held beyond that 72-hour limit. And then close to a third of the 3,000 migrant children also. Tell us some of the takeaways of this report, because some of it is so horrible sounding. There was no Mm -hmm. access to showers for children in some cases. There were Mm -hmm. migrants that were being held for as long as a month and had not had a shower. They were just given wet wipes instead. I mean, there's a lot of stuff Mm -hmm. going on here. At some of these stations, there was no access to showers for kids or adults, something that, again, CBP's own standards require. For many of these kids, they didn't have really any opportunity to even change their clothes or do laundry. And of course, they've probably been traveling for a long time and are dirty and have been through a lot. Two of the centers didn't even provide hot meals for the kids in their custody. They did provide snacks and sandwiches in some cases, and they had baby formula and juice and, and other things, but they weren't giving them full meals. And while they tried, Border Patrol would try to keep families and kids and cells with the doors open, trying to make it as least restrictive as possible. But in some cases, because of sicknesses and other issues, they were forced to keep lots of kids and families shut in these small cell spaces. And in the report, you can see images of women and children kind of crammed together in these small spaces with aluminum blankets to keep warm. It's really harrowing images that you see in these reports. Yeah, the Office of Inspector General also had to end their visit early at one of the sites because their presence was aggravating the situation there. People were behind the wall and they were like banging on the walls trying to say, look, I've been here for months, you know, et cetera, et cetera. It was just becoming a whole situation that they had to leave. We're getting a lot of images from this big report from the Department of Homeland Security. Representative Joaquin Castro also toured a border facility and tweeted out images and videos of women at one of these detention centers. This is all coming at a time also when the Associated Press just posted a pretty dramatic video of a 12-year-old girl who mm-hmm. was in this border patrol station in Clint, Texas, the one that had over 700 kids at some point in a facility that was designed for about 100 adults. They moved the kids out. They cleaned it up. They moved some back. But they posted a video of her talking to her lawyer or her family's lawyer And what she was describing is very much what was in this report that we were just talking about also. Children crying for their parents. She said they weren't being treated right and, and, you know, given really crappy food and things like that. It's really powerful to hear a child actually talking about their own experience in these conditions. And, of course, this is going to leave a lasting imprint in her life and in many of these kids' lives. And so hearing her talk about not being fed good food and being surrounded by other young children who are crying for their parents or their aunts and their uncles and being in a facility for that long when you're only supposed to be there for 72 hours. And the child also said that there were some who had been held in Border Patrol facilities for more than a month. And when I visited the border a little while ago and speaking with other people, I'm sure Border Patrol officials, they're trying to do the best they can. These facilities are simply not designed to care for kids and families in this way. And we're seeing this breakdown right in front of us. We're hoping that relief will come very soon on all of this. The president signed an emergency $4.6 billion border funding package that a lot of the money is supposed to go to help some of this situation. What was in that bill and and what are we expecting to go to these border facilities? The funding is basically to help these agencies have more um, at their disposal to care for the surge of migrants that have come across the border and are now in government custody. The president has said that immigration raids will start happening after July 4th. The administration is also trying to impose hefty fines on migrants who have eluded deportation, in some cases charge them over $500,000. I mean, these people don't have this kind of money, so who knows how that will shake out. Steph Kite, immigration reporter at Axios, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you.
We're always concerned with what is happening with our personal information, especially in this age where data is king and companies are constantly selling all your stuff. Data brokers right now are selling your secrets and states are now trying to stop them. Vermont has implemented a new data broker registry and it's highlighting some of the difficulties of regulating these secretive firms. A lot of times they don't sign up for the registry. A lot of times they just kind of ignore everything altogether. We spoke to Douglas McMillan. He's a business reporter for the Washington Post. For more on how data brokers buy and sell the personal information of millions of Americans. This data broker registry, it's really the first attempt to do this in the country. It opened earlier this year and it has more than 100 companies that have signed up to basically fill out a a short questionnaire about, yes, I am a data broker, and if you want to opt out of being in my registry, these are the steps you have to follow. That's the basic information they were asked to provide. Unfortunately, Vermont doesn't seem to have thought through how you can make that information easily available to the public. Essentially, you have to go in and search for the name of the company to find a PDF that you can then scan through to find this information. And when when you do find the, the PDF, it's typically written in legalese. So these data brokers, most of them have had their lawyers write the answers to these things, which it it tells you everything you need to know about this whole attempt to regulate these companies. This is an industry that is used to operating in secrecy, and they're not used to being accountable or beholden to the public at all. So the first attempt to do this, it's not that surprising that what you get is a bunch of legal gobbledygook. I mean, that's so tough hearing you describe that. How would you ever know what one of these third party data brokers names are? You know, unless you're going through a list and just kind of randomly putting one in and saying, does this person have my information? Does this person have my information? That just doesn't seem, (laughs) you know, easy at all. One of the companies that you mentioned in your article is called Amerilist. And for $150, they'll make a list available of information on 5,000 people. That could include home address, age, religion, education level, income. So this is kind of how it works. I mean, for a single person, your data can be very important to you. But when they're selling it, they're selling it by the thousands for really not that much money. It's pennies for a single person. Basically, we wanted to do an experiment where we wanted to see what you get if you buy one of these lists. Typically, it's a marketer would buy one of these lists because, you know, I'm a marketer and I want to go out and reach everybody who falls into a certain category. Like I want to reach everybody who's 20 to 35 who is in the L.A. area. And you can go out and you can buy that list. It's probably going to be you know, millions of people. And it will basically come to you as a spreadsheet. And that spreadsheet contains some information that maybe you had entered somewhere in a survey. Maybe some of that information is obtained through your credit card purchases or your shopping history at grocery cards, if you have a loyalty card at a grocery store. But some of the interesting data that we found in the list that we bought was what's called inferred data, which is yes. basically, it's not actual factual data about these people. It was it's basically a guess. So these companies are guessing things like your race and your religion. And that's done by, that might sound like a sophisticated thing to do. It's not. It's basically guessing based on your first and last name and where you live. Uh, if you're likely to be Hispanic, if you're likely to be white, if your name is O'Connell, then it guesses you're likely to be Irish. Right. So it's, um, and that's probably it's, why uh, you get a lot of misleading ads sometimes, because yes. some of this information is, is just kind of inferred, as you said. So some yeah. of these data providers will have a set series of data points, like your name, your age, and all that stuff. Then they'll overlay data from other places like Experian and another company called Ethnic Technologies. 
And then they'll make these guesses and they build these pretty detailed profiles of people. And then that's what they're selling out. It's like we described in the article, it's sort of an assembly line of different data broker companies who are working together. It's not like Facebook, which is basically mining all the activity that you're doing on Facebook or on your mobile device and then selling that to advertisers. This is sort of a different system. It's dozens of companies who most of them you do not know their name even, buying and selling your data from one to the next. And it's that lack of transparency and lack of the ability for any reasonable person to go out and find what's being done with their data that has, you know, I think a lot of regulators and a lot of privacy advocates upset and wanting to try to make some rules around this. One of the things that really confounds a lot of people, they'll say, hey, how do these people get my data? It's part one, you're giving it away and you don't know who you're giving it to and what they're going to do with it. And then two, you know, a lot of these privacy policies are kind of written in a way where you're really not either going to read it or you just can't understand it. Tell us how some of these people get our data. You use an example of people going to websites like privatestudentloans.com, howtogetin.com, gradloans.com. Yeah, this is a network of sites. It's owned by a company called Advisors. It turns out that's owned by a company called College Loans Corporation. And essentially, they've set up all these shell sites that are designed to entice high school students into entering their personal information into a survey. And they do that by saying, hey, if you enter these surveys, you're going to get a chance to win a $10,000 scholarship. And what happens after you hit submit on that survey is pretty interesting. We found that that data is then sold off to a company called ALC, which is most your listeners probably have never heard of. I had never heard of it right. before. They repackage that data. They overlay it with data from another company called Experian that tries to guess some of your demographics. They also overlay it with, as you said, this other company called Ethnic Technologies, which guesses their race and religion. And they sell this all as a package to marketers who want to reach what they call college-bound students. So this is an interesting kind of example of this data assembly line at work. And as those students signed up for this site and and filled out the surveys, they probably didn't know it, but they were agreeing to become part of this world. Vermont is trying to take a crack at this. There's a a round of other states that are also trying to get a handle on accountability for, for these data brokers. There's a movement in this country and really around the world. Europe actually led the way last year with its data protection rules. California is going to set to start its privacy regulation at the beginning of next year. We don't know exactly what that's going to look like. There are a number of states who are trying to regulate this, and there's a push for potentially a federal law. And one of the the things that people are talking about could be part of the federal law is a national data broker registry. So this is definitely a top of the agenda item for anyone who's talking about online privacy regulation. Certainly a lot of these efforts have been focused on Facebook and their recent string of scandals. But I think you're also going to hear a lot of focus on data brokers and what's called third-party data or, or data that is held by a company that didn't get it directly from you. That is the lifeblood of this data broker industry. And if regulations start to outlaw third-party data or put severe restrictions on it, you could see these data broker companies really struggle and potentially go away in the near term. Douglas McMillan, business reporter for The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me anytime. Don't forget to join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. 
leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition.